0: Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. And this week we are in Romans 1. You can turn there. Romans 1 is Paul telling everybody across the board, Jew and Gentile, that they are in need of the gospel because their natural state is so sinful and so corrupt that there is no way that they can achieve righteousness on their own. It's on that basis that he's going to continue to present the gospel, but we're not going to get to that gospel part this morning. We're going to continue concentrating on what Paul is saying about our natural state. As I said last week, human beings generally don't like the biblical anthropology, but it doesn't matter what you think, it only matters what God thinks. And so this is a description of how God sees you. Paul is going to describe us in such really terrible terms that if we ever embraced what Paul is about to say and said, yes, that's me, that completely describes me, absolutely, I'm just like that, you'd go home and lock the door and never come out again. And the rest of us would be grateful for that. (laughs) So it's really necessary for you to understand how God sees you. Because until you see how God sees you, until you understand the necessity of a savior, you're never going to really appreciate what Jesus has done or how desperately you need an actual savior who actually saves. There's a tremendous amount of theology out there that says that you and God together get you saved. That you do your part, he does his part, and then the two of you, in some sort of synergistic way, end up getting you all the way to heaven. The Bible says nothing about that, and when we finish up this morning, and you see how Paul describes us, you're going to recognize, hopefully, that there's simply nothing in you that is good enough that you could contribute to your salvation. It has to be a result of God in his sovereignty, through his son, by his Holy Spirit. He does all the work. You are simply the recipient of his astounding grace. And so even though this is going to be a somewhat depressing message to hear, gosh, God sees us like this, this is what I'm really like, the end result of it is grace, it's all grace because I keep saying over and over again, you have to take sides with God against yourself, and you have to recognize yourself the way that God sees you so that you can also see yourself as saved in the finished work of Christ. And the only way you're going to recognize and understand the magnificent glory of the grace of God in salvation is to understand the absolute, complete, total depravity of human beings. If you think that there was something attractive in anybody, if you think there was something in anyone that caused God to say, well, I've got to have him, I mean, it wouldn't be heaven without Tom, you know, I got to definitely go get him, well, then you're thinking that God reacts to some genuine quality that he finds in mankind. But the Bible keeps saying over and over again that ever since the fall, there's just nothing good in man. You read through the Old Testament, and you see that man's heart was nothing but wickedness continually. But we read by that, and we say, well, that means mostly. Nothing but wickedness continually. Well, not me, though. It doesn't mean I'm totally depressed. Well, yes, it does. That's exactly what it means. The Bible keeps saying that all your righteousness is filthy rags. That's still Old Testament. That's still Isaiah. All your best efforts taken before God is like handing God a bunch of filthy rags and saying, here, I got you this. And you think on that basis, God is going to accept you and bring you into his heaven? Well, it simply cannot be that way. So now Paul is doing the same thing that the Old Testament authors have done. He keeps quoting from the Old Testament to demonstrate the truth of what he is saying. And he is showing that mankind, human beings, all anthropos, all humans, Jew or Gentile, are all guilty, guilty, guilty. And left to themselves, they just simply could not stand before God and not fry. And justifiably, God would be completely within his rights to say to absolutely everybody, get out of my presence. Go to outer darkness. You have no business being here in front of me because he's absolutely righteous and holy, and you're absolutely not. And so he'd be well within his rights to just kind of shut the gates altogether and say, no, it's just... Me, my angels, my son, and we're just going to remain in our holiness. But in astounding grace, he chose some people and gave them the unmerited kindness, the unmerited favor that lays at the very basis of grace. So as we look at this text this morning, even if you see some parts of it that you say, that's not me. Well, okay, fair enough, because there's going to be other parts that are you. In fact, Paul is going to go to such lengths to catch you. That he's going to create four large categories, and then he's going to describe 17 characteristics, attributes, behaviors that are standard human behavior that all fall into those four categories. And if you're guilty of any of them, which by the way you are, but if you're guilty of any of them, then you're a guilty sinner. Case closed. And if it weren't for the Savior, if it weren't for Jesus, then you're absolutely hopeless. Because this is who you are by nature, by behavior. So let's start reading. We are in Romans chapter 1. I'm going to start reading at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Lighten up, Paul. He starts right in with the wrath of God is revealed in the very creation. The creation screams creator. We talked about that last week. And the fact that the creator exists means that the judge exists. And his wrath, his anger, his punishment is decreed. It's revealed. It's shown to everyone from heaven. And that wrath is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Okay, so there's some basic truths. The truth is God exists. That's just the truth. God is holy. God is absolutely righteous. That's just the truth. But human beings want to suppress that truth because human beings are, what's that word, wicked, because human beings can't deal with the fact that the real God exists so what do they do they suppress that truth or they redefine that truth and say well my God wouldn't be that way (laughs) but the real God the God of the Bible is exactly that way he's taken all this time to tell us what he's like and he starts out with his absolute holiness so how many folks in here today would say you have absolute holiness anybody anyone Anyone? Last call. Anyone? No? Nothing? And yet you have to have absolute holiness to stand before an absolutely holy God. And you don't have that. So what do you deserve? You deserve his wrath. You deserve hell forever. You deserve outer darkness. You deserve for God to send you away from him. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is generally known about God is evident within them, within the heavens, within the creation. For God made it evident to the creatures, to the people. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, And his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. But even though they knew God, had some knowledge, had some demonstration of the reality of God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart. Was darkened. And professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four footed animals and crawling creatures. That's how far we got last week. And then I left you last week and said, Cheer up, saints, it's gonna get worse. Now we get into the worst part. Therefore, God, because of their impurity, because of their unrighteousness, because they worshiped other things than God, because they worshiped the creature rather than the creator, therefore God gave them over. You're going to see this phrase a couple of times. God gave them over to what they wanted. This is what they desired. They don't desire God. So God said, fine, if that's what you prefer, you can have that. But it's a form of judgment on God's part. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their foolish, darkened hearts. He gave them over to impurity, a lack of holiness, a lack of purity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. Now, starting at verse 25, he's going to describe what way their bodies were dishonored among them. The first demonstration of the sinfulness of man, starting at verse 25, is, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and they served creatures, created things, rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, for the reason of their corruption, for the reason of their worshiping foreign objects that they themselves have created, because they worship creatures rather than the Creator, because they professed themselves to be wise, but they had foolish dark hearts, for all those reasons, God gave them over to degrading passions. And now he's going to describe the first of these degrading passions. For their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. Do I need to spell that out? It's homosexuality. Now, once upon a time, there was no controversy with reading that statement. Once upon a time, if you went to church and somebody opened the book of Romans and read that statement, you agreed that that was the word of God. These days, unfortunately, because of the societal shift that has taken place, it's also become more controversial to say that women exchanging the natural function of their sexuality so that they lust after one another if you say that's unnatural and degrading today people say well that's not politically correct you're you're not supposed to say that be quiet Jim Mm -hmm. there are people in Canada who have said less and ended up in jail so you've got to be careful apparently when you say these things but I can't help the fact that it's the word of God It just does say it. In the Old Testament, it says that homosexuality is an abomination. New Testament, still the same deal. Then in the same way, says verse 27, and in the same way also the men abandoned their natural function of the woman, and they burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, Committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Is that clear? Is there anything in there that's vague? Have we overinterpreted anything there? All I did was just read verse 27 and immediately you knew that it was describing men burning in their lust over other men. They're describing homosexuality. Now, The common way these days that homosexuality is justified, even in some Christian circles, is that they say, well, the type of homosexuality that Paul is describing is different than the homosexuality that is occurring today in the world. In fact, I had someone recently say to me, Paul didn't know, he didn't understand the kind of, this is a quote, long-term committed relationships that people have today. And so they believe that the long-term committed relationship excused or justified the homosexuality that Paul describes. But you'll notice here that Paul says nothing about how you feel. It says they committed indecent acts it's all about the act it's all about the doing it doesn't matter how you feel about it what if i i don't know what if i slapped april i'm just making something up now and it woke april immediately up she wants to know why she's getting slapped now but let's say that i slapped april and, of course, Micah would, would be immediately not my friend. And what if I said to him, yeah, but I just felt like slapping her. <laughs> would that improve things? Would that make anything better? No, no. But, I, but wait, wait, you don't understand. I love slapping. <laughs> I really, I got a tremendous amount of pleasure out of slapping April. April. Is that going to make anything any better? No. Then why do we believe the pernicious lie that says just because I have an emotional involvement in this act that somehow makes the act justifiable or better? Paul says nothing about how you feel about it. I don't care if you love murder. The Bible says don't murder. I don't care How many of your emotions are wrapped up in your adultery? The Bible says, don't commit adultery. In the exact same way, it says, the exchange of the natural function of the woman for man-on-man love, burning in their passions for one another, is an indecent act. And it is the act that both the Old and New Testament restrict." say, don't do it. Is that clear enough? Is that obvious enough? Your emotions about it don't matter. How you feel about it don't matter. It only matters that the Bible says, don't. That's immoral. That's indecent. That's an abomination. Don't do it. In the same way, also, men abandoned the natural function of the woman, and they burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, since they don't want to grow in the grace and knowledge of God, God, here's that phrase again, gave them over to a depraved mind. It's almost like Once they pushed God out of their minds, there was a vacuum. And into that vacuum comes all of this depravity. So their mind goes from being a mindset on the Lord to being a mindset on depraved things. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Notice again, doing Acting, it's all the doing and the acting. It doesn't matter how you think about it, how you feel about it, but a depraved mind will do things that are simply not proper. Being filled, rather than being filled with the Spirit of God, rather than being filled with the righteous knowledge of God, instead they are filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed and evil. You will notice on the board behind me for those of you who can read the words that are on the board. If you can't read them, it's because you're sitting too far back. I'm planning to get new glasses so I'll see. You <laughs> <laughs> There's all these empty seats up front, but you all are way back there. I have written four words in English letters. These are Greek words. Those are the four words that you just read here, unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil. Now, let's go through these words one by one, because as we get into the list, it's going to matter more. Last week, I told you that among the Greeks, they even had a goddess whose name was DK, the goddess of justice the goddess of righteousness anytime that you see greek words that have that dk base you're talking about righteousness fairness justice the word for righteousness is dikaioune it's got that dk base right in it this first word has that dk right in it autokia and it's got the alpha negative on the front. In other words, the alpha negative, the A letter at the beginning of any Greek word, takes that word and turns it 180 degrees in the other direction. So this is the word for righteousness with the A in front of it. So that's the word that is translated unrighteous. Now, we've heard that word so often that we kind of miss the depth of it. God is nothing but righteousness god is nothing but holy justice that is the essential characteristic of god that he is sinless and that he is absolutely righteous and then we are described as righteous not we are described as adekia that's our first problem is that we have no righteousness in us so it's translated Unrighteousness. The next word is wickedness. This is the Poneria word up here. To give you some sense of the depth of this word, in Matthew 6.13, Jesus is laying out the Lord's Prayer, what we classically call the Lord's Prayer, even though he couldn't have prayed it. It's really the disciples' prayer. But he's teaching them how to pray, and one of the things that he says to them is, Pray this, deliver us from evil. And when he says it, he's using the word like it's a proper name. It's a name that is actually given to Satan. That's why some of your translations will say, deliver us from the evil one. Well, that name, that wicked one, that evil one is the word poneras. This is the characteristic of having poneras. Poneria that's what he's talking about this kind of deep wickedness it is a deep seated internal characteristic of wickedness that is satanically inspired so so far we got righteousness not and demonically wicked and that's how God sees anybody who is not filled with the righteousness of God but wait it gets worse this third word Planexia is translated greed, and really it has to do with everything that is me first. Everything that is I'm the center of the universe. Me, me, me. More me. What do you think about me? I'm a self-made man. I can do it myself. I'm completely independent. I don't need God. I don't need to be dependent on God. And whatever I got to do, if I got to climb over you to get mine, I'm going to do that. Well, that's this word that is translated greed. And then after all those words, they're summed up in kakia, which is just a horrible word. In fact, kakos is a word that just means absolute depraved evil, just the, the depth of evil. So, okay, so Paul starts out by saying, because they didn't see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they would do the things that are not proper, being filled, not filled with God, not filled with righteousness, but being filled with all unrighteousness, that's the word adakia, with all wickedness, paneria, with all greed, planexia, and with all evil, kakia. That, that's the beginning of how God sees you. Good news, huh? Isn't it fun to be in church? This is how God sees you. Now, we said last week, and I'll say again, it doesn't matter if you don't see yourself that way. It just doesn't matter. You either have the Spirit of God infilling and protecting you, or that's you on the board. Wicked, greedy, evil. But Paul's not going to stop there. He's not going to stop at You have no righteousness. He's now going to create a list of 17 more characteristics of human beings that have to do with their nature, their character, their actions, And who they are intrinsically down deep. They're filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil. And then he says they are full of envy. Now, I'm not going to go through each of these Greek words for you. But every once in a while, the Greek words are actually interesting and will help us understand because they're connected to these four words up here. But this first word, full of envy... I don't think I even have to prove that to you. If you've ever bought anything because somebody else had one, there you go. As soon as you saw your neighbor with a better car or a better house or a better sweater or a better anything, as soon as you looked at somebody else and you thought, I wish I was like that. I wish my marriage was as happy as theirs. I wish... I wish I had more of what that guy has. He's got more money, so he's got more options. I wish I had more than I have. Well, immediately, as soon as you start thinking like that, you're saying, I am dissatisfied with what God has chosen to give me. If God is absolutely sovereign, then wherever you are or whatever you have, that's what God has chosen for you. But if you're not satisfied with that, if you're not content with that, and trust me, I know, contentment is the most difficult of all human characteristics to actually achieve. I get that. I get it that it's hard to be content. And the only place that you're going to find genuine, true contentment is in the knowledge that an absolutely sovereign and holy God loves you too much not to do that that's for your greatest good. And so he's put you where you are and given you what he's given you because this is what is necessary in order to get you to your predetermined residence in heaven. He knows what he's doing. But we, because of our evil hearts and our wicked minds, oh, we envy so quickly. Oh, but Paul's just getting started. We're full of all envy. And then he goes right from that to Murder, this is the word for slaying people, this is the word for slaughter, this is the same idea as all the way back in the Ten Commandments, you will not commit murder. Now by the way, let me add parenthetically, since you're probably sitting there right now feeling pretty good about yourself and thinking, ah, there's one I haven't done. Um, I don't murder, I haven't murdered anybody, so I feel good about myself. I assume that if you would just do something naturally, God wouldn't have to mention it. Like you'll notice in the commandments, he doesn't say anything about eat regularly. Because you're going to do that. He doesn't say anything about breathe. because You're going to. You're going to do that. But he has to bring up those things that he needs people to know. Like Don't kill each other. Why would he say that? Because there were only four people mentioned in the Bible at the very beginning. Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. And what happened? Cain killed Abel. Right away, as soon as there were human beings and as soon as there was sin, the killing started. So God says that's intrinsic to our nature And I know there's not a one of you in this room who haven't at some times wished that somebody else would just take the permanent dirt nap. You know you think that. Why? Because it's just built into you. You're just full of murder. All kinds of strife. Eris. It means to be wrangling, to be quarreling, to be contentious, to always be debating. Now, I think this is also within the category of them not wanting to be filled with the knowledge of God. How often have you told somebody something right from the Bible, something that's clear and obvious in the Bible, something that's true about God? You just, you don't even have to prove it. It proves itself. It's right here. What's the first thing they'll say? They'll say, yeah, but what about, I like the old phrase, sheep follow goat's butt because they end up going but but yeah but and then they'll start debating and then they'll start quarreling and then they'll say well I know that's the word I got but I think my opinion is and then they become contentious they set themselves so, did you just point at your son I see everything from up here <laughs> <laughs> contentious arguing That's all part of that me first thing. That's all part of that sense of me. I'm above everybody. I'm in front of everybody. My opinion counts more than anybody. And I will argue and quarrel with anybody. So, so far, we've got you're unrighteous, you're wicked, full of greed, full of evil, full of envy, murder, strife. Here's one you're going to enjoy. Deceit. You know what that means? It means to trick somebody. The essential Greek word is trickery, is to trick somebody to get something out of them. And there's not a person in this room who hasn't at some time coerced somebody so that they could get their own way. And they did it in a deceitful way. That's just built into us. It's just our nature. It's just our character. It's just all part of our me firstness. But then after that it starts getting darker. Malice. Now this word malice, you see this word kakia down here that I said was the very essence of evil, kakothea, kakiathea, I think I'm saying that right. Is this word translated malice? Essentially it means you're a person of bad character. You're a person who's malignant and angrily mischievous. And so it's malignancy. Then just about the time that you all start thinking, okay, 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 I haven't murdered. For the most part, I don't do that deceit and malice thing. The very next thing Paul mentions is gossips. So we went from really bad. I mean, we went from like men with men committing heinous acts. And then we went into murder. And then we went into malignancy and all kinds of evil. And then right from there, Paul goes right to gossips. It's the word, the Greek word that means whisperers, talebearers, people who can't wait to tell you something negative about someone else. You know what I heard? And by the way, there is a whole publishing enterprise based on that very thing. If you're standing in line at the checkout counter, you've seen it. You've seen all the the rags and the papers that they sell at the checkout counter. They're just full of gossip. And then you'll hear yourself later talking to one of your friends saying something about, well, you know, Angelina Jolie really has three children this amendment. How would you know that? Well, I read it in this paper at the checkout line. At the You're gossiping. This is part of why James has so much to say about your tongue. Controlling your tongue, controlling your speech, because you will go out and say gossipy things. A secret spreader, a whisperer, and right with it is a slanderer. Katalelos is actually the word kata, which is extreme or to a, a more extreme degree. And then lelos, you know, you know the word um, glossolalia, speaking in unknown tongues? Well, okay, that word lelos it has to do with language, has to do with speech. And katalelos is bad speech, speaking badly about people, slandering people, backbiting people. So my point is, and I think Paul's point is, right alongside of all these other really horrible, corrupt things, before you feel too good about yourself, gossiping and slandering is just as bad. It's also on the list. Haters of God. That's, that's actually a compound word. I love Paul's compound Greek words. Uh, theostuges And basically, you hear that theos right in it, that's God, but then it's the word for having nothing to do with, to be a a hater, to be impious, to not want God in your life. And if you can start reading this list and see yourself in it and think it doesn't matter, well, then it falls into that category of hating God. Putting God away, holding God down in unrighteousness, not thinking about the things of God, not reading the word of God, not caring what God thinks as long as you get your own way. And if that's the way you are, then you are insolent. Really, really interesting word because it's hubristes in the Greek, which you can hear has the word hubris right in it that English word hubris came down to us right from that Greek word. And hubris, of course, just means to go beyond what's appropriate, to just make too much of yourself. And so that's the very essence of what it is to be insolent against other people, to be despiteful, to be injurious to other people. And right along with your insolence, the next word is arrogant. Now, this is that word, huperaphanos. Now, that hooper prefix is the Greek word from which we get hyper. When somebody's hyper, it means they're above energy. Hypo means underneath. You can think of a hypodermic needle. That means under skin. But hyper is above. So what this word essentially means is thinking of yourself above other people to be too proud, to be arrogant, to be haughty, appearing as above everybody else. And then naturally, with it comes boastful, to be a braggart, to think too much of yourself and make sure that everybody knows you think a lot of yourself. So, so far we've got slanderers, we've got haters of God, we've got insolent. We've got arrogant, we've got boastful, and then along with that, there's the really creative people, people who invent new kinds of evil, as if the kinds of evil that already exist aren't good enough. There are people who invent new ways to be evil, according to Paul. Inventors of evil of evil, and then just about the time my son and my daughter start to think, well, you know, I'm not a slanderer, I'm not a hater of God, I'm not insolent, I'm not arrogant, I'm not boastful, I don't murder people, I'm not... okay, I'm doing pretty good. The next one is disobedient to parents. You know, I am obedient to my father, but I am kind of murderous and arrogant. <laughs> it's the opposite. Disobedient to parents. This is just another one of Paul's compound words, and it really just means to be unpersuadable to your parents. Now, Paul is going to talk about natural and unnatural affection. He says that homosexuality is unnatural affection. But then he's putting this right in the same category, that you should love your parents, you should be obedient to your parents, you should recognize that they have your best good in mind, don't point to your son again. And so you want to be obedient to what your parents are saying for your own good, they're trying to raise you up in a proper way, but your disobedience is all part of that arrogance and all part of that over ego and independence and I'll do things my way and that makes them next on Paul's list without understanding again he uses the alpha negative he's he uses a word for understanding and sticks the alpha negative on the front of it and it really means just not smart unintelligent So if you're without understanding, especially if you are without understanding of the things of God, then you are really genuinely without understanding. And so it is ultimately a form of kakia. It is a form of evil to be without understanding because the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. And if you don't start there, then you're without understanding. And that is genuinely a form of evil. Then you're untrustworthy. Again, he just uses the word for trust and sticks the alpha negative on the front of it. It means to be treacherous when you make any kind of a covenant or a compact. In other words, you can't be counted on. You say you're going to do something and you don't do it. You say you're going to be there and you don't show up. You say that you're going to that you're going to care for somebody and you don't care for them. You're just not a trustworthy person. So after that comes the word unloving. Same idea. He uses the alpha negative to speak of a kind of natural affection and then say you're without that. You're the opposite of that. You're hard-hearted towards your kindred who are the very people who who you should be kind to. And then you sum all of that up in, you're unmerciful. Again, he's taken the word mercy, being merciful, and just stuck the alpha negative on the front of it, merciless. Now, of all people, the people who have received mercy from God really ought to be the most naturally merciful. If we recognize, if we understand that God has been good to us, then we really ought to be good to other people. The people who do not have the spirit of God simply cannot, they cannot find it within themselves to find the inspiration to be merciful because they're egocentric and they're prideful. And they're boastful and they're full of all arrogance and they're full of themselves and they're full of me first and they're full of their murders and they're full of I'll do what I want to do when I want to do it. And as a consequence, it's impossible for them to be genuinely merciful. Okay, shall we walk through the list again? By the way, did you hear yourself in the list anywhere? Really? Michael was the only one who raised his hand. That was it. The rest of you kind of nodded sheepishly but yeah you know that by nature you're in this list even if you're not guilty of one you're guilty of another so let's go through the list the list started with indecent acts the list went from there to God giving them a depraved mind so that they don't do the things that are proper Then they are filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil, broken down into they are full of envy and murder and strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And now to cap it off at verse 32, at the end of chapter 1, he says, And although they know the ordinance of God. Okay, let me explain that for a Quick second. Uh, we've been talking a lot as we've been going through the first chapter of Romans about the fact that Paul is writing essentially to two different audiences. He is writing to the Gentiles and he's writing to the Jews. At this point, he's saying both Jew and Gentile are responsible before God. They are both guilty before God. But the Jews actually have the ordinances of God, and everything we just read is in the law. Everything we just read is already restricted in the law. The Jews should know not to be like that. And yet they are like that because that's their natural proclivity. And for lack of worshiping God and honoring him as God, they had gone and chased their foreign idols and they had committed all these unjust deeds. But then you've also got the Gentiles who don't have all these rules, who don't know all this, who have a whole pantheon of gods, who need to be taught the proper behavior before the one and only Yahweh, the only God who exists. So Paul says, although they know the ordinance of God, that would be the Jewish side of the audience, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, the Jews should know that, they've been told. They not only do it, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice it. That word practice means to continue in it. If you've ever gone to the doctor, the doctor doesn't say that he has a job. He'll say he has a practice. If you go to an attorney, he's practicing law. But the reason that they use, that they use the word practice is because it's an ongoing enterprise. They're doing it continually. And here he says there are people who know how wrong this all is, and nevertheless, they not only do it, But power in numbers, they appreciate other people doing it too. Then they don't have to feel so bad about themselves. I mean, after all, yeah, I know i murdered, but I'm not as bad as Charles Manson. He murdered a bunch of people, you know. Nobody in this room is as bad as Hitler. There, we're all off the hook. So he says they not only practice such things, these things that are worthy of death, They not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. I promise I'm nearly done, and I appreciate that you believed me. (laughs) We could be here for hours. We don't know. So now, knowing that, now that we've leveled the playing field, now that we know Jew and Gentile, now that we know that every human being without the Spirit of God is guilty of all this, now that we know how God looks on us, now that we know that across the board this is the way human beings are, now that we know that regardless of what we think of ourselves, God sees us as depraved in every one of these categories. We're all responsible. We're all guilty. Now, knowing that... How do we get away with judging somebody else? We don't. Because somebody else might do something in this list. And we're very quick to go, Oh, did you see what they did? Oh, yeah. You feel better about yourself. See, I didn't do it and they did. Oh, yeah. Mm, Guilty. Probably not saved. Gossiping. Yeah, it's gossiping. Absolutely. Oh, it it falls right into a whole lot of this list. But yeah, yeah, probably not. uh, probably not saved, probably falling under the wrath of God now, yeah. yeah. Except that now Paul is going to say, beginning in chapter 2, and trust me, we're not going to do the whole chapter, but I want you to see the connection between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, remembering that there were no numbers when Paul originally wrote. He did not write, and now chapter 2. He's continuing the same thought. He's continuing to say, now that you know this is what you're like, Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Therefore, so he's continuing the same thought. He's saying, Based on all this, based on what you know so far, therefore, you are without excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge someone else, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things a minute ago I just gave an example of talking about somebody else so would you see what they did and my daughter immediately went well that's gossip right so even in the judging you're already guilty of something else in the list and because you're guilty you have no basis on which to judge now this is the word Krino, that Paul is going to use continually here, but he's going to, in just a moment, talk about the judgment of God, and he's going to use a different word. He's going to use crema, which is the absolute judgment of God, which also includes the punishment for your sin, that also includes the sending to outer darkness, the sending out of God's presence, going to hell, lake of fire, all of that is the crema judgment of God. But here he's saying, crino, a slightly different thing, where you're just looking at people and holding them guilty. You recognize that they're guilty and you think that you have something to say about their standing before God and their eternal state. And he says, don't do that. Now, very, very common for people to say, yeah, I know the Bible says judge not lest ye be judged. That was Jesus saying that, and I contend he must have meant something by it. Don't judge unless you're going to be judged. Don't do that. But then folks will say, but the Bible says to judge good judgment. And that's true, except that that's talking about good discernment. As you go through your life, you're going to have opportunities to discern what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong, and use proper judgment and proper discernment in those areas. But the, wow, I saw what you did. You really messed up. You're probably not saved. Your theology isn't as good as my theology. You're probably not saved. Oh, you're not part of the denomination I'm a part of. So you're probably not saved. God probably doesn't love you. You know, that's the kind of judgment that Jesus was saying. Don't judge you. You're going to be judged. And here Paul picks up the same thing and says, how do you pass judgment on other people knowing you're guilty? If you're also guilty of the exact same list that Paul just laid out, on what basis can you judge anybody else's eternal state? You can't do it. You don't have the grounds to do it. You don't have the authority to do it. You don't have the leave or the grant or the permission from God to do it. You have no basis on which to judge. God is the only one who can judge because God is the only righteous one. And since he's the only righteous one, he can hand out prima, real judgment. Therefore, when people say, You can't judge me. (laughs) They're essentially right. But that's not the end of the story. There is a judge. And there will be judgment. It's just not yours. I, I, I like Leon. I like Leon a lot. But in the end, what Leon thinks about my eternal state doesn't change my eternal state do you understand what I'm saying Leon can say whatever he wants about my eternal state the problem with Leon's judgment is that he doesn't have the power to enact it he doesn't have the authority to do it he can say to me well he never would but he can say to me you you go to hell and you know what I don't have to go. (laughs) It's, It's like, no, no thanks. Thanks, Leon. But no, no thanks. If God says to you, you go to outer darkness, you go to the lake of fire, not only does he have the righteous ability to judge you as guilty, he has the power to send you there. He has the ability to cast you away from his presence forever. Judgment exists. Judgment is real. It's just not up to us. You got the difference? For all the folks who say, you can't judge me. Yeah, but that doesn't mean there's not a judge. And he does judge. So Paul says, therefore, you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God, the crema of God, rightly falls on those who practice such things. What things? The list. What I just read to you. What's up on the board? If that's how you act, if that's how you practice your life, then judgment is headed your way. And do you suppose, O oh man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things, and then you do the same things yourself, do you think that you're going to escape the judgment of God? Okay, that's a really pressing question. If there's no way that you can escape the judgment of God because you're just as guilty as the other person is, that ought to be your inspiration not to be judge of other people. Because as soon as you judge others, you're a hypocrite. And you're begging God to judge you because you're walking around judging. And yet you can turn on Facebook any day of the week (laughs) and watch people argue and contend and talk past each other and debate and judge, 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 judge. 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 So much judging. Everywhere. Because I think it's an innate characteristic of human beings that they think if they can find your flaw, that makes themselves feel better about themselves. Mm -hmm. But then they take your flaw and cast that right out into, well, then you're not saved. Get this right. Who's saved and who's not is up to God. Who's going to be judged? it's up to God now you've been given the list Paul has laid it out the law has laid it out God has laid it out over and over again don't be like this everything from homosexuality to gossip to backbiting straight down the list to murders. To just don't do that don't be like that these acts are the acts of unsaved unrighteous people don't be like that Now, I said at the beginning, you're going to find yourself somewhere in this list. So far, did you find yourself in the list? Oh, fine. You don't need to testify anymore. How many of you hate it when the pastor asks you to raise your hand? How many of you hate that? Yeah. Now that you see the list and that you see yourself in the list, do you get some sense of why Jesus is so important? Because you can't save yourself from this. You can't do anything about this list because a miss is as good as a mile. If you gossiped once, guilty! And the judgment of God is waiting on you unless you have a redeemer. And as we keep saying, Jesus is a perfect Savior who saves perfectly. Jesus is a powerful Savior who can save you from this list. And you need saving from that list. And you're not going to save yourself. He has to do all the saving. You are the recipient of an astounding grace. So it is on the basis of this list and this knowledge of our own inherent evil and badness, it's on the back of that that Paul is now going to start saying, but there's a deliverer, but there is a savior. But there is an intermediary between you and God and now he can build the importance of Jesus and that's where we begin next week. So for all of our guests that were here this week and heard all that bad news, I expect you back next week to hear all the good news because the good news just gets gooder and gooder when compared to this bad news and you needed the bad news to understand how good our Savior is. Got it? On the side? Questions? Comments? Yes, sir. I just have to say, I'm so much a part of that list. There, number three. Put it next to you, the meannessness that you talked about. Yeah. And my name is in it. Whew.
1: Leon. Oh, there he <laughs> <it> is.
0: Leon. <laughs> wow. Let's talk about how greedy Leon is.
1: Next time you preach that,
0: Jim. I hadn't even noticed that. Anything else? Anybody want to compete with Leon? Anybody else want to find their name up here? All right, good. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye.